taking a few minutes out of your day to listen to this message. This is the Journey Church Podcast. Our hope is that it leads you closer to Jesus and encourages you to live your life on mission for Him. For more information about our church and how you can get involved in what God is doing at Journey, please visit jrny.church. Hey, you can be seated at all of our campuses. Give somebody a high five as you're doing so. Let them know that it's good to see them. It's good to sit by them. It's great to be with you. This is the last Sunday of the summer. How many y'all excited? How many y'all depressed? I don't know why you're depressed. You're going to start smelling pumpkin, pumpkin spice all over the place. Pumpkin spice is nice. And so uh, Eagles start this Thursday. And so we get to defend our world championship for the first time ever. So that means that we have about three three hours of football before Philadelphia fans start complaining again. And so uh, we're going to fall starting. It's the last day of summer, Labor Day. If you're not with us today, you're on vacation the last time and you're watching, man, we're glad that you're joining with us. If it is your first or second time here today, maybe you're, you're, you just came into town for school or uh, you're just back after, after being away for a few weeks or maybe you came with a friend today, uh, we're thankful that you're with us. Our, our church motto, our vision is to be a church that exists for those not yet here. And that means everything we do, we just want, we just want it to make sense to people who don't go to church. And so I'm going to preach a message today. Whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or, and you go to church or you're not and you're just here visiting, I believe that God will, will still speak to you if you allow him, that there's going to be something in today's message that you can apply uh, because what we're going to talk about starting today and really going for the next four weeks is, is relationships and, and friendships. And, and our model of our, of, our, of our sermon is we're going to call it us and it's going to be based on the theme, we can't do life alone, that you were not created to live this life by yourself, that, that though we, we, we applaud independence and though, though, though we, we oftentimes will we'll pat ourselves in the back for, for being able to make a stand on, on, on our own and, and though we live in a culture that kind of is getting more and more uh, isolated and, and secretive, that, that I want to encourage you over the next four weeks that, that we're, we're better together, that, that if you're, especially if you're a follower of, of Christ, that God created you to be in, in relationships. And so we're going to start this message today. If you want to follow along, uh, you can open up your Bible app. If you don't have your Bible app, uh, you're, going to, you're going to see a message on the screen. You can text that. It'll give you all the instructions that you need uh, to do so. But everything that I say at all of our campuses will be either on the screen, uh, kind of on top of me, and here it'll be to the right or to the left. And so uh, all the Bible verses, all the points, everything like that. The reason I know that we need to be together is if you go back in, in the Bible to the book of Genesis chapter chapter two, everything's perfect. Got, Adam's there by himself. He, he's with animals. It's paradise. It's, he has all the stuff that you can imagine. And the Bible says he's still lonely. And so the Bible says that God puts him to sleep and, you know, makes Eve. But this is what he says in Genesis two. He says, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And what did he say? I will make a helper suitable for him. Now he's talking and referencing Eve, but that word helper in the Hebrew actually means companion. It's not a sexual word. It, it, it's actually you, Adam, you obviously are being created to need to be surrounded by other people. In this context, it's going to be his wife, but it also applies to friendships, that we are, we are not created to, to be without companionship, that we are created by God uh, to be together. And what's interesting is we're getting worse at this part of life. I don't know if it's Satan trying to isolate us and, and cause a division. I'm not sure what it is, but we're getting worse. In fact, if you would ask somebody 25 years ago, how many close friends do you have? The average American would say six. I have six 
close friends. I have six people that I do life with. I have six people that I call when, when I'm in trouble. I have six people that help me move, right? You got to, I got friends that move with me. I got six friends that, that when, I, when my wife got pregnant or, or I, got, I, I would announce to them, I have six friends that, that when our kids are sick, we, we help each other out. Like I have six close friends. And today, if you ask the average American, most of us would say two. 25 years have passed. And the average American will say, I have two. I'm not talking about your, your frat br- brother from 25 years ago that you drank with. That's not a friend. I'm not talking about your mom. She has to like you. Your spouse, I mean, we can include them if you want, but that's your spouse. I'm talking about people of the same sex. If you're a guy, how many guy friends, you're a girl, how many girl, girlfriends do you have? The average American will say two. Here's what's, here's what's even scarier. One out of, one out of four will say zero. The average American, one out of four will say, even though we were created to have relationships, one out of four will say, I have absolutely nobody to talk to, nobody to share what I'm struggling with, nobody to pray with me, nobody to meet, nobody, not, not, listen, I'm not talking about hanging out. That's not what I'm talking about. When I talk about friends, I want to make sure you you build this because we're a church, so I'm going to preach a lot about Jesus and I'm going to talk about Christian friendship because that's that's kind of where where I've studied and and, and I need to get the basis of every message from the Bible. And so we're going to define Christian friendship. And so as not just somebody you hang out with, that's not a, that's not a friend. A Christian friendship, that what God designed, is somebody who challenges you and encourages you to be more like Jesus. That's important. Not just the, not just the fun part, not just the hangout part, not just the laugh at you because you're stupid part. They challenge you and they encourage you. Some of you are going to be on the zero level because nobody's ever allowed to challenge you at all. As soon as they challenge you, unfriend their butt, right? You, I'm not talking to you ever again. I got a million other Facebook friends. I'll talk to them. They challenge you and they encourage you to become more like Jesus. There's a bunch of us that will say zero, and the average person in this room is going to say two. And nobody really knows why this is happening. But there's all different theories. One theory is that we work so much. You work so much now, so many hours at all of our campuses. You have, you have all these activities that if you have kids, you know that your day can start at 5 in the morning and, you're, and it can end at 10 o'clock and you just repeat that process. You pick them up from school. You feed them Wendy's, 4 for 4 special, right? That feeds two kids. You need to find yourself at, at Wendy's. And so feed them Wendy's, take them to soccer, pick them up, do homework, put them in bed, make sure they bathe every couple days so they don't stink and repeat the process. And then the week is over for you you know it. Who has time for friends, right? Who has time to even talk to anybody? You don't even know the day has passed. Some people say it's because we work and our schedules that we keep other people. Their theory is there's so much divorce. And so when you get divorced, naturally, you have to pick sides. Nobody wants to pick sides. So it's just awkward. So you just don't talk to those people anymore. Your kids are all kind of friends. Then everybody gets divorced and it just makes it weird. And so you have all this divorce and you have all of these long work hours. I, I, I read a lot this week and I would say that my theory is social media. Social media is a one is a one one direction conversation. I know I know we we say it's not, but most of it is. You take a picture of your feet at the beach, take a picture of your your four for four special at Wendy's. Hashtag awesome, right? Heaven. Uh, you let people know what you're feeling. You have this one way conversation. You go back not to see if anybody else has said anything. You go back to see what they've said so you can respond again. And we have these one way conversations. And then when you get together with people, and it's time to have a conversation. You don't know how to ask questions. 
Because you've been so busy just making statements. And so social media, we've become more uh, uh, on the internet connected, but we've replaced relational intimacy with, with social media. So I'm not sure if it's social media. I, I, I would tend to lean that way, that, that we're more known by, by everybody. We share more stuff with everybody that we probably shouldn't share. But we, we know each other less. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe, maybe it's because we work long hours. I don't know what it is. I just know something is, is happening. And just because it's normal doesn't mean it's right. And so I want to argue us back. I want to I push us back to the significance of relationships, especially as a church. We're turning 10 years old, and there's going to be some things that we're going to begin to focus on more. And what I've realized is one of the weaker areas of our church is, is our community, our, our connection, our, our relationships, our ability to challenge and encourage each other. Our, our ability for each other to call each other when maybe somebody's not been at church for a long time or somebody's doing something they're not supposed to be doing. You know, we need more than just the pastors to call people out. It gets old after a while. Who's calling this? We, we, I need somebody else to step up in a Christian mature way that's hanging out with the person that actually has influence in their life and say, hey, buddy, what you're doing is stupid. Like, I, I'm just a believer, a, a big enough believer that those relationships can actually happen, that you can actually have friends for longer than a few weeks. That you can have decade-long friends where, where you influence each other's families and you have a hand in raising each other's kids and you, you cry together and you laugh together and you encourage one another and you challenge one another and you have each other's phones on, on speed dial because you're, you're going to breakfast together and you're talking through things and there's times in your life where you're going to look back and you go, thank you for that moment when you said something to me because no one else was. I, I know those relationships through the guidance of the Holy Spirit are available to us. And so I want to I wanna push you in that direction. Here's the problem. Most of us, because we've grown up in a cult, we don't, even know the, we don't even know what the purpose of relationships are. The advantages to Christian relationship, I would call them. So the, the title of my message, and we're going to play on the word us if you didn't figure this out, is Advantage Us. I want to talk to you about the advantages. Next week, we're going to take a look at the topic of, and I think this one's going to be going to be good. I want to make sure I get it right in order. Contage us. I want to talk to you about your friends, actually. Who you hang out with, who you become. You catch whatever bad diseases they have. That's what happens. And so the Bible talks about yeast. And so he says, beware of the, the yeast. We're going, to, we're going to talk about that because some of you got that, right? Like you, you hang out with people with a bad attitude. Guess what you get? Bad attitude. You hang out with, with, with guys that are talking bad about women and not, not faithful to their wives, you oftentimes cannot be the husband that God has called you to be. If you're a woman and you get together once a week to gossip, you're a gossiper. Like, that's just the way that it is. Contage us. The next year, we're going to take at the topic of courageous. I want to I challenge you to five friends that push you towards great steps of faith. And then the last week, we're going to take a look at the topic of consensus. And I believe that God can, can bring into your path, and also you could be uh, Holy Spirit wisdom to people, that you can help each other make wise decisions. But today, I want to talk to you about the advantages uh, of friendship, because if you don't know what the advantages are, you won't pursue them. And I want you to understand, this is not just a sermon series at all of our campuses about you finding friends. Please don't make this selfish. We love to do that in America. It's, it's, it's like, that's the, like, don't make this message only about you. It's also about you becoming a good friend. Don't, don't make this message solely about how God's not brought you any friends and nobody likes you and you just need friends. That's what's wrong with your life. Make it also about you understanding and developing yourself as a friend to somebody else. What does that involve? Asking them questions listening. How many of y'all hate listening? Just get to the point, right? Listening and asking questions and spending the time and putting your freaking phone down when you're with them. Come on, preaching way better than you're talking to me. Getting rid of social media in the middle of it. Not, hey, yeah, it's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you. 
Like just being a good friend along with finding good friends. If you don't know the advantage, you'll never pursue it. Let me give you an example. I have a, I have a car. Anybody else have a car in this place? I have a car, 2007 uh, Jeep Commander. That's exciting, right? And so I have this car. I've had it for almost eight years now. And in my car, I've driven it. It's, you know, it's got some different buttons in it. And one of the things about a car is as your car begins to age, different buttons stop working. You ever notice that? It's always annoying things. Like it'll drive, but it's annoying to drive. And you have this love-hate relationship with it. And so I've always had this. Like my, my first car in college was a Volkswagen Jetta. And it ran fine, but something weird was always breaking on it. Like it had this sensor where it would beep at you to tell you that you needed oil. But every time you changed oil, that would beep at you until your oil got low again. And so when you would get to oil, beep, beep, beep. One time me and my wife drove from, from, from uh, Texas to Oklahoma, four-hour trip, beeped the entire four hours, right? Really set the mood. And so like the car was, was possessed. It was like demonic, right? And so like, I, I got a Jeep now, American-made car. And even in my Jeep, stuff begins to go, to, go, to go wrong. And so the one thing that started happening about four years ago is my knob on my radio started to be finicky. And so I've had to whisper sweet nothings to it and be kind to it. It Because there's times you can just spin it and it just, does, it just doesn't do anything. And so it's in bed. You pull up to a drive-thru. Your music is pumping, 94.1, talk radio's going. And they're trying to ask you what you want. And you're trying to turn it down. And when you're turned down, it's going up. And you're, hold on a second, my radio's possessed and trying to do it. And so my buttons, I mean, there have been trips where I have spent a half an hour trying to get it to go from 7 to 18. And you just go and you go two steps forward and it goes three steps back and you're like, just work. I'm 38 years old. Can I get a knob on a radio that works? So a few weeks ago, my son, my oldest son, he's old enough to sit in the front seat now. Uh, and so he's in the front seat and he always asks about buttons. Like he'll be like, what does that button do? I'm like, what does that button do? I'm like, just, just stop asking me about buttons. I'm gonna put you back in the back seat, right? So he asked me the other day, he said, dad, there's a button behind your steering wheel. What's it for? I don't know what he's talking about. I said, I don't know. But I don't want to talk to you when I'm driving and I can't look right now because I'm, my eyes are on the road and that's illegal, son. And so I said, I don't know what it is. He said, no, no, no. See what it does. He's like that kind of kid. See what it does. See what it does. So he reaches over and he hits this little, this little button that I've never seen before. And guess what it was? A volume button. I was like, oh my goodness, right? I was like, I love this car again. I've arrived. There's a luxury car. I got a knob that works. I haven't, I haven't touched that old knob one time. I broke up with that old knob, right? I divorced it. I've been, I have this new knob. I don't even have to reach for it. I just up, down, up, down, up. It's amazing. I never knew it was there, though. Somebody told me today, he said, on the other side of your saying, well, you can change the stations. I can't wait to get out of church to go check that out. But if you don't know the advantages, you won't, you won't pursue the relationships. And so what I want to do is I want to just, in a quick way, I want to give you today as a foundation the, why God made them. Why, why God? Because it's God's idea. It's not the world's idea. They, 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 they don't have a jeopardy on it. They didn't define it. It's kind of like sex, money, anything else. God is the creator of all that is good. So he's designed this, but we've kind of let Satan over, overtake it. And now no one's really close with anyone and everything's kind of, kind of fake. And so I want to I really talk to you about the significance of Christian Christian friendship. And I want to take you into what, what will be kind of the foundation of our sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you're not a church person, Ecclesiastes was written by a man named Solomon. Solomon had an interesting life. His father's name was David. His mother's name was Bathsheba. They got together through an affair. Um, David, David got his, his mom pregnant, had his, her husband killed, by the way. Her husband and David 
We're really good friends. And so he has, he's the king. He does whatever he wants. Gets this woman pregnant. Has, has Bathsheba's husband killed Uriah. Uh, brings it back. Tries to cover the whole thing up. Baby dies. Uh, then they kind of get their, he gets his life back right with God and, and continues to stay married to Bathsheba. And they have another baby and that baby Solomon. It's an interesting life. Some of you thought your life was messed up. So Solomon then kind of, even though he's born into that situation, Solomon then kind of repeats a lot of what his father did, which is a lot of times what we do, he, he generational curses, and so his father couldn't keep his hands off of, off of the women, and neither could he. He marries hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women from all over the world. He has a bunch of concubines. They're over a thousand. He has a thousand girls at his ever beckoning call. He's the king of one of the most powerful countries in the world at that time. He has gold. He has everything you can imagine. And he's living life. He's as successful as you can imagine. And he writes this book, Ecclesiastes, in his old age. And, and the point of the book of Ecclesiastes is not, I'm going to write a memoir of all the great things that I've, that I've done. I, I'm going to write back to younger people a caution letter. I don't want them to do what I've done. I know that they're going to think, looking at me, that they could have had a great life like me if they just do the things that I've done. But I don't want them to repeat what, what I've done. And so he talks about all these things, and he often says... I saw this thing that was meaningless under the sun. That's how he starts a lot of his, his statements. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he says, Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. I think he's talking about himself here. He says, There was a man all alone. And we can be surrounded by people, but still be all alone. He says, There was a man that was all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless a miserable business. So he, he just gives us a little insight. He doesn't say it's him. But I think he is writing about himself without mentioning himself. There's this man that works endlessly at his kingdom. He has all the gold you can want, all the, all the females at his disposal that you can want. He has everything that you can possibly went, want. Yet, he's done that at the expense of not being close to his sons or his family. He works, but he never enjoys it because he never has enough. He says, this is miserable business. This is an awful way to live. In other words, what he's saying is, he's saying at the end of your life, you're probably not going to talk about your favorite house as a structure. You're probably not going to talk about all of your accomplishments. You're probably not going to bring pictures up of you by yourself in a picture. Here's when I caught that huge bass. Here's my car, my favorite car. See, the people that live the richest life, at the end of your life, you might look at pictures, but the pictures are going to be you and your, and your friends or you and your, your kids. You might talk about a house, but you're going to talk about the house that you made the most memories in with people. See, at the end of your life, it's going to be all about the, the people, the relationships that you had, the people that you influenced, the, the connection that, that was formed in your life. You're going to think about those people. You're not going to think about all the other things he's trying to tell us. And then he, he says this in, in the next part. He says, he says, two are better than one. He's trying to tell young people, he's trying to tell us, two are, are better than one because they have good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls down and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered. Two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. What's he doing? He said, let, let me describe to you what, what life, what the richness of life really looks like. Let, let me talk to you about the significance of the relationships that you're in. You weren't created. I did life alone. I was the king. I was on top of the world. 
I pursued everything for myself, and I'm telling you that I have all these things, yet I'm not close with my family, my sons, my, my friends. I don't have any of that. He says, I need you to know that two are better than one. Maybe he's talking about himself, and maybe he's speaking directly to your, your situation. And what I want to do is I want to give you just quickly just three what I would call advantages to Christian friendship. Three advantages to Christian friendship that he's talking about in that second part of Ecclesiastes. One is this, is I would say the first reason that God made relationships is there is, sim- there is support for our stand. There is support for our stand. Now, I want to talk to Christians specifically here, because if you're a non-Christian, you're not going to under- understand this. And even if you're a Christian, you might not. But I want you to understand what you're a part of. When you give your life to Christ, you're not giving your life to a church Uh, you're not giving your life to a set of doctrines. You're giving your life to a person. Giving your life to to, to, to your Savior. And when you give your life to your Savior, you're listening to your Savior's words and His words in the Great Commission. We're going to all the world to preach the gospel, baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. His words were go out and seek and save the lost. His words in one part of His gospels were you're the light of the world. A light of the world, a city that should not be hidden. You are salt in the world, don't lose your, your saltiness. And when he saves you, he's not just saving you to a church or to a doctrine. He's saving you to himself, and he's saving you for this world. Can I make sure you understand that? That you, are, you have been called to make a difference in this world, whether you're a college student, whether you're a high school kid, a middle school kid, and el- even your elementary kids. Maybe there's even the fifth and sixth, uh, fourth graders and third graders and even your little kindergartner goes in. They're called to go make a difference in your workplace. You are called to go be a light in a dark world. Wherever you go, your family that you're going, God, why do I have that, that family that you give me? You're called to go make a difference. You're called to make a stand. And here's the thing about it. Sometimes as a Christian, making that stand can feel extremely lonely. It just does. You go into a college classroom at most normal schools, even Christian universities, and you're going to make a stand. You're going to get up and go to church on Sunday morning and be involved and serve and and allow God to use your life and live differently than most college kids live. There's going to be a time it feels extremely lonely. You go to a normal a normal university, and you don't even want to breathe in some classes because you don't want people to hear your Christian breathing and yell at you. You go into your workplace, and it feels like everybody else in there is hooking up with people and sleeping around, and nobody is faithful to their, their marriage, and everybody gossips, and you hear your pastor tell you you've been called to make a stand. You go in, and you're, you're, you're outnumbered, and you're surrounded, and it feels over, overwhelming, and, and even in, in your family, you just, there's just times where it feels lonely, and you feel isolated, and you feel overwhelmed, and you wonder to yourself, what can I all by myself do? And sometimes in those situations, doesn't it just feel like the world is just beating? you down and what's encouraging is when you know that you are being supported because you're connected to other people that are living the exact same life that you're living it might not be in your school but maybe maybe they're in a school in the other part of town and they're they're making the exact same standard. They might not be in your college or they might not be working in your certain career or at your certain business, but there's people all over this region that are called to the same thing and making the same stand. And, and sometimes, man, it's nice to step away from the, the fight that you've been fighting and to step into the, the confines of a safe environment and to look somebody in the eye and, and, and say, have you been fighting the fight? And they'll say, I've been fighting it. And they say, have you been fighting it? I've been fighting it. And you can pray with each other and you can pat each other 
other on the back and you can say, hey, I know we both feel like giving up, but we're both fighting for the same thing. And if you're fighting, I can keep fighting. It's like going to the gym in the morning. You ever go to the gym in the morning with somebody? You know what I do with the person I go to the gym with? I type up. That's it. I I text them up. And that means I'm up. If you're up, we're going. But if I text up and I don't hear nothing back in five minutes, guess what I do? Bed. If you go by yourself, you ain't going to the gym at five o'clock in the morning because there's no one. But if I know if I text up and he texts up, right, that means we better get up and get to the gym because both of us need to get there. And I pay for the pass and he mooches off me. He won't be able to get in. That's what happens in, in Christian relationships. That's what he says. What does he say? He says two are better than one. Two, it, it's better to fight a battle with, with, with two people. One of my favorite stories I saw on social media, speaking of social media this week, was a story of an 11th grader, and his mom said, in the story it said, it said that he texted her, he didn't sit by himself. And I was like, I got to read this, because this, this, this sounds kind of sad and make you cry kind of thing. And so I read it, and she said her son, one of her greatest uh, painful moments of her son's life for the last seven or eight years is he goes to school every day, he sits by himself. And she'll text him, and she'll say, are you sitting by yourself today? And he'll say, yes. Are you sitting alone? Yes. Are you sitting alone? Yes. And so 11th grade year, he went to school, and the mom texted him at lunchtime. She heard nothing back. She thought, oh, God, they killed him. They put him in a trash can. They did something to him. They slammed him in a locker. He didn't text me back. She texted him again. Are you okay? Again? Are you all right? And a few hours later, he texts back with exclamation points. Mom, somebody sat with me. She, she called him, and he, she said, what? And this, that's the reaction I had. Oh, and so... He said, the student council, which by the way, whoever the student council was, that's a student council. The student council saw that I was sitting by myself. If you're a student, this is, this is one of the greatest ways, by the way, to make a difference. Don't sit at the table with all the, with all the kids that, nobody, that, that don't do nothing, that are selfish. Find the kids that nobody's sitting with. Go sit with them if you're a Christian, by the way. That's a little side note for you. And he said, they came and sat with me. And, and the story said, they've been sitting with them ever since, and now he wants to go to school. There's just something about that support. There's something about that's why church is so important. You get together with other people that have all hopefully been fighting the same fight. We're worshiping the same Lord. We're trying to move the same mountains together. Christian friendship is designed because there's support for, for our stand. You are called to make a stand. But here's the thing. But God didn't call us to make it alone. You can't do life alone. Two more. Number two is this. Is I would say there's, there's sympathy for difficult times. There's, there's support for the stand. And there's sympathy... For the difficult times. See, the difference between a Christian and a, a non Christian is when, when life gets rough, because it gets rough for both of us. Can I, can, can you, you understand that, right? And, and immature Christians often believe when life goes bad, God's against me. When life goes good, God's for me. Even, even in the world, that's how we think. If life's going good, world must be for me, universe must be aligned, and life's going bad, something I need to do, change my thinking for life's good. But, but, but Jesus implies that that's not necessarily true. There are certainly times you make a dumb decision and you have to face dumb consequences. That happens. That's called life. There's other times you do everything right. You're serving God. You're, you're sacrificing. You're tithing. You're seeking first the kingdom of God. And you go into a season that feels overwhelming and it feels like God for, forgot you. And in those moments, we know that that's not a mistake, that God hasn't turned his back on us because Jesus said in the book of John 16, I tell you these things so that in me you may have peace. Watch what he says. In this world you will have trouble. There's going to be moments in your life when you're facing 
trouble. And, and what happens is oftentimes when you face trouble and you're not a Christian, what do, what do we have to offer each other when you're not a Christian? You, you offer your presence, but your presence is just you. When you're a Christian, you, you offer them something different. And so what does Solomon say? He says, if either of them falls down, one can help the, when you're in relationship, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls down and has no one to help them up. I think of that commercial from the 1990s, the fallen and I can't get up. Also, I don't know why. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And some of the guys in here are going, okay, you had me till that part. Because I'll do that with my wife, but I'm not doing it with my best friends. I'm not going camping, laying out with the guy close to him, to get close to him. I'm not, not holding hands. I'm not hugging. I'm not doing these things. You know what happened? When I, when I studied this verse, I, or this, this whole passage, relationships, and this topic, I Googled it because I wanted to get some other people's advice and articles, Christian. And every article that I found in the first four pages was written by a woman for women. It was, it was almost as if guys were saying, I'm out on this. Like, I don't want any part of this. I'll watch sports, we'll grunt, we'll fart, we'll itch, we'll, we'll laugh, we'll talk. We're not getting deep, and I'm definitely not cuddling with the dude when it gets cold. I'll put a sweater on. But, but you have to understand, Solomon, his father, was a shepherd before he was the king, and so he would have spent a lot of nights out in the ancient Middle East when it got cold, and the, the sun some drops would get extremely cold there. And so what he was saying is he's saying, hey, when it gets that cold and you're outside by yourself, you, you don't have any shame. You'll pull a sheep close to you. You'll sleep close to the next shepherd. You'll do whatever you can. He says it's better to be close to somebody than be freezing. And some of you don't understand it. I'll give you an example. When I was in college, uh, one night, we didn't go home for break because I was in Texas and my, my home was Pennsylvania. And so it was a break like this, early fall break, whatever. And I didn't, I didn't go home. And two other guys were from Boston. So they stayed in my dorm hall as well. And so me and a guy named was Dave and another guy's name was Tom. They were brothers. We decided late one night we would rent silence of the lamb and watch it in a in a dark concrete uh dorm room hallway right what silence of the lamb at a bible college i needed to get saved y'all and so we watched this movie we, we watched it like four o'clock in the morning i am terrified i still have dreams about clarice right and so like and it's time to go back to my dorm my dorm room is like is like seven or eight doors doors down and tom's is even farther down we take a look out it is pitch Black, dark, the lights were off for a long time. I was like, we're all sleeping together. I was like, I, I'm not even getting my blanket. I'll sleep on your couch. I'll snuggle up with you. I'm not going out. I am not meeting that dude tonight in my room. See, when you, when you get desperate, when you, when you go through, let's just talk, maybe not physically, maybe talk spiritually, maybe talk emotionally. When you, when you fall down as a Christian, when you're, when you're troubled, when you're, when you're going through difficult times, when you, when you got a report of a miscarriage, or when you, when you get overlooked for, for a job, or when you have something unexpected come into to your life, you don't need the empty words of a friend that doesn't know Christ. You need the truth of a friend that's in a relationship with them. You need them to bring you your presence because, listen, when they bring you their presence, they're not just bringing you their presence because when you're filled with the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Bible says we're two or more gathered in my name and that's what we are. Guess who's there? Me. See, when you get together as a non-believer with other people that don't know Jesus, you get together with them. But when you get together with other people that are in faith, you get together with Jesus. And the Bible says you can take heart in those moments, that you can receive sympathy. Not only can you, you receive the presence in that moment, but here's the thing. We can encourage each other with the promises of God. 
That's what it says in, in scripture that, that, that I love. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5, encourage one another and build each other up just as you are in the fact currently, currently doing. The promises of scripture. Some of you don't know them, but there's, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of promises of scripture. So when I speak to somebody that's of the faith, that we're both walking with Jesus, and they go through a situation that I don't even know to how to deal with and have to answer with, I don't tell them, you're going to be all right, buddy. It's fine. I take them back to the promises of scripture. When they feel like God has forgotten them and God's plan for them is bad, I take them back to Jeremiah 29. What does it say? For I know the plans I have for you. Plans to what? Plans to prosper and not harm. Plans for a future. I, I, I know that when, when, when they're feeling tired and they feel like maybe they're, they're being a burden to God because they keep whining. I go to Matthew 11 where it says, come to me if you're weary, heavy laden, and what will God do? God will give you rest. When, when they feel like they're far from God's love, I take them to Romans 8, one of my favorite passages. And I read them the words of, of Paul, that Paul said he's convinced that nothing can separate you from the love of God. So let's say you have a friend that's completely dropped the ball as a Christian. They've made a decision that is completely uh, uh, impacting their life in a negative manner. And they feel like their, their life is over. And they feel like God's never going to love them. I'm take them back to Romans 8. This murderer says that he was convinced. So even though you're an adulterer, and even though you cheated on your spouse, or even though you made that mistake, that the Bible says that, that this murderer was convinced that nothing, and that's, that's you, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. See, there, there's sympathy. There's sympathy for our struggles. And, and num- number three, the last one as we close, is I would say that, that God designs it because there's, this, this is common sense, but there's strength in numbers. That there is strength in, in, in numbers. We know that many hands make what? Make light work. And so he, he lets us know, he says, he says though, the one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And then he uses this illustration that we probably wouldn't understand. He says, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. You know, that, that, that passage is used by people oftentimes at a wedding. The, the, the husband is a strand, the wife is a strand, and then the Holy Spirit or God is a strand. And that's a great illustration. But basically what it is is that you, you add a, a strong husband of the faith and a strong wife of the faith and you put the put your faith in jesus that you add those three strands together and nothing can break apart your marriage and that is a that's a that's a true principle but it also could just mean friends he says you you give me one good friend that's a pretty strong rope you give me a few the more healthy friendships that i have the stronger that my life gets me by myself, I can only take so much. I can only do so much. I can only carry so much. I can only reach so many people. You give me good friends. You surround me with good people. Man, there is strength in, in numbers. In other words, he's teaching us that we are united. We, we are strong, but divided. As Christians, we become extremely weak. That's where Satan loves to do his damage. He loves to isolate us because when he isolates us, he makes us vulnerable. You know how I know that? Because on the last night of Jesus' life, he goes to Peter. And Peter's about to completely drop the ball and deny him. And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, Satan has come to sift you. The word sift means separate. He's come to divide you. He's come to tell you that that mistake that you're about to make is about to cause you to be separated from me forever. 
He's come to convince you that there is no forgiveness after this. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. That that what you're about to do is never going to be undoable. He's come to sift you and separate you from from me. And I think that Satan attempts to exact me. He wants you to be alone. He wants to sift you. Why, Why do you think the first thing he does in a Christian's life is he gets them to not come to church? He uses summer, by the way, to do this every year. He takes you away for two weeks, three weeks, and it's five weeks, and it's seven weeks, and it's nine weeks. You give Satan nine weeks, he can do a lot of damage in your life. By the time you come back, you're picking up the pieces from bad decisions, from, from regrets, and then he's telling you you've done too much, you've been gone too long, you've made too many mistakes, and he is sifting you. He's separating you. Because he knows there's power and there's unity in numbers. He knows it so much that there's, there's a story in scripture where where Jesus cast out demons. And as he cast out demons from this man, he tells the crowd, Satan's coming back with seven more. Nah, and not the same. He's coming back with, with, because there's strength in numbers. He's coming back with seven, seven more, more strength, more unity, more power. The same thing is true for us. Man, there is there's strength when, when you're together. I've seen it in church so many times. There's been times in this church where... Where I've set up, or me and my wife have set up or run this church all by ourselves. And now, in our history, there's, there's times where armies of people are part of it. There's strength in numbers. There's been times where, where maybe one person has showed up to the hospital to pray for somebody's need, maybe an unexpected health situation. And there's other times where an army of Christians shows up. There is strength in numbers. There's been times where maybe people had a baby and they, or they had an unexpected medical uh, situation and they needed meals. And I've watched this. Maybe one or two people have stepped up. And there's other times where an army of people steps up. There's strength in numbers. We're strong together. We're weak while we're alone. You can only do so much, but we're strong together. There's strength. There's strength in relationships. There's, there's, there's sympathy. There's compassion for each other. And there's, there's the ability to help us to continue to stand, to, to support one another. And so if you're struggling today as we get ready to close, maybe this is the beginning of something new. Maybe this is the beginning of you passionately pursuing uh, relationships with other people. And you're going to have to let things out. You're going to have be, to be known. You're going to have to to not want to be isolated. You're going to have to not cover things up. You're going, to, you're going to have to be willing to cry. You're going to have to be willing to touch. I hate that part. You're going to have to be willing to, to be frank. You're, you're going to have to be willing to have real friendships where you look at somebody that you're friends with and say, that's not good, man. Not, not, not well, let's see what happens. No, somebody in your life to, to kick your butt. You're going to have to allow your butt to get kicked going to need to open up our lives to people so that we can have the relationships that God has not only called us to have, but he, he's created. We can't do life alone. Would you stand with me all over this house? Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes? And as we get ready to pray, we're going to be leaving this room in a couple moments. This is not just a time to check out, please. This is a time for the Holy Spirit to continue to work in your life, to continue uh, to move in your life, to continue to, to, to prod you and to push you. And here, here's what I want. We're going to pray. And, and we have a great opportunity today because we're going into something we've designed very specifically based on this sermon series is, is our home groups. We're going to have an opportunity for, 
for 40 di 43 different leaders to lead different life-giving groups where relationships are made and connections are made and encouragement happens and support happens and challenging each other happens. And here's what I prayed before I preached is, God, uh, don't let us use excuses and, and, and fear and, and doubt and, and, and worry and whatever else that Satan is bringing into our lives to not sign up for groups and to not make an effort to be connected and to not allow other people to be in our, in our lives, that he would take every excuse and then also that the Holy Spirit will guide and direct your steps. That's what the promise, that he will guide and direct your steps, that he will form the right relationships that, that, that he has created you to have so that you can become the people that you are called to be. That this, this will be a very uh, life-changing Sunday for, for a bunch of Christians in this place. And, and as, as I say that word Christian, I, I just want to make sure you understand what, what's happened here today. Because I know you can come into church and have all sorts of questions, fears, doubts, worries. Sometimes you can come with all the answers already because of past experiences. And so you come in here and you already know because of what you've met and who, who you've met and what you've experienced, what it means to be a Christian. And so when I say the word Christian, it kind of turns you off and you think of somebody in a political party or somebody who thinks they have it all together or somebody who's judgmental or, or somebody who thinks they're perfect. And so I want you to understand what that means. Because we're, we're not perfect people. I'm not a perfect, a perfect preacher. I'm far from it. That every day I fail the Lord, but His grace is there for me. The Bible says that his mercy is new for me every morning. So I'm not a perfect person. When I say I'm a Christian, I want you to understand what that means. See, the Bible teaches a message, and really every religion in the world teaches the same message. That we're broken people. We know this. Whether you believe in God or you don't. And the reason you know you're a broken person is because there's no other reason that we would have so much anxiety and fear and and worry and doubt in our lives. We live in the richest economy that this world has ever known and we have more things that are, than our grandparents could ever imagine, yet we have more fear, more anxiety. We are more medicated. It's almost as if something is wrong. The Bible tells us what's wrong. It says we're sinners and we can try to make it right on our own. We can get religious. We can start acting right and talking right and trying to earn the favor back of our God. But the Bible says he's a father. And you don't earn the favor of a father through your actions. You receive the love of a father because you're his son or his daughter. And he loved you longer and before you could ever even imagine. And so God implies, the Bible implies the same thing about God, that he is our father. And he loves you more than you can imagine. But he had to do something with the sin. He's a loving God, but he's a righteous judge. And he could not wipe his hands and turn his back and say it's no big deal because sin is destroying your life. So what he should have done is said, good luck, you figure it out. And instead what he did is he sent his only begotten son 2,000 years ago. His name was Jesus Christ. He stepped out of eternity into this world. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He died the death that me and you should have died on a cross. And when he died on that cross, the Bible says that he was sacrificing his life in our place. That his blood was paying the price of our sin. That they took his lifeless body off that cross and they placed him in a tomb. And on the third day, the Bible says that even though they tried to keep him dead with soldiers and a stone and a seal, that death could not hold him. And on the third day, he rose in victory. 
And the message of the gospel is that you, you're broken, you're lost, you should be crucified. Your sin should separate you from forever. But Jesus won the victory on the cross that you couldn't win. And now it's in him, by him, and through him that you have new life. So what does it mean to be a Christian? I'm a sinner and I realize I need a savior. And at a moment in my life when I was 18 years old, I simply said, Jesus, here I am. I need you in my life. I need your forgiveness. I believe you did what you said you're going to do. And today I'm going to give you everything that I am, past, present, and future. And as I made that confession, Jesus came into my life. The Holy Spirit filled me with power. I held purpose in my life, a reason to wake up in the morning, a reason to keep breathing. My life is not perfect, and it is not always, always easy, but my life is in the hand of my creator, and that's what it means to be a Christian. Some of you in this place, you would say, I need to make that decision. I'm not a perfect person, but I realize what I'm missing. I've tried to find it. I've tried to search. I've tried to earn it. I've tried to date it. I did everything that I could possibly do, and my life still feels empty. It's Jesus. He's here right now, and the Bible says if you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus did what I just said he did, that the Bible says that you would be saved. You would be a brand new creation. Your sin will be made clean. Your life will be new. Your eternity will be secure. I'm not going to heaven because I'm a good person. But I am confident that as a 38-year-old man, if I take my last breath right after I'm done preaching here, then I'm going to be with Jesus because he saved me. So if you're here right now at all of our campuses, nobody looking around, you say, you know what, I'm not a Christian, but today I want to give my life to Christ. Today I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. I want to receive his death and his burial and his resurrection as the gift that God gave me to save me and set me free. I want to leave this place and I want to be a brand new person. I'm tired of depression. I'm tired of anxiety. I'm tired of fear. I'm tired of being weighed down by my past. I'm tired of hearing the lies that Satan has filled my head with. Today I want to be a brand new person. If that's you, all over our house, there's, there's somebody standing in the front just like I am. And I want to pray with you as we close. And what we do at Journey Church is I'm not going to make you come forward. But if that's you, I want to pray. Maybe you've never prayed before. We're just going to say, Jesus, here I am. Come into my life. But what I want you to do, if that's you, is I want you just like a son or a daughter would reach to their father, because that's what the Bible says God is. Is that you all over this house? I just want you to reach your hand up towards heaven and say, today I'm going to ask Jesus to be the Lord of my life. If that's you at Phoenix, would you just begin to shoot your hand towards heaven? I don't want you to worry about the person to your right or your left. Today, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. If you're at, if you're at Limerick, if you're in Royersford, if you're in, in Plymouth, meaning you're watching online, maybe you just respond. I'm, I'm responding to the gospel. I, I'm asking Jesus to come into my life. I'm going to give you just a few more seconds. I'm just going to give you a few more seconds. Jesus is calling me. Jesus is knocking at the door of my heart, and today I want to let him in. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to receive him. I want to receive him. Would you begin to pray? Let's clap for the person in Royersford that's responding to the gospel. Is there anybody else that say, hey, pastor, that's me. I'm going to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Let's begin to pray. Jesus, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for what you're doing right now. You're just beginning to do it. You're reaching people. You're changing people. Lord, you're calling people and you're saving people right now. And Lord, being a Christian doesn't mean we're perfect. Being a Christian doesn't mean we went through classes or our parents got us confirmed. Being a Christian means we have bent our knee to you. 
that we have given our life to you, that we have received you as our Lord and our Savior, and we have committed the rest of our life to becoming fully devoted to you. So Lord, I'm thankful, Father, that you're touching people and you're saving people. And Lord, as we continue to pray and rejoice with heaven, Father, would you just be, be, begin to, to do a work in our relationships? Would you unite us and, and connect us with the right people? Lord, who we hang out with is who we become, Lord. And so would you, would you do what only you can do through the groups that are about to start? Lord, would you give us courage to take steps of faith, Lord, and to sign up for groups and to meet new people and to pursue what you've called us to pursue? Lord, we were created to do life together, and we can't do it alone, Father. We know that together we're strong and united. United we're weak, Lord. And so I'm thankful, Father, Lord, as you built this church, that you're going to build this area. You're going to build our community and our unity and our oneness, Lord. And so I'm thankful for that. Thank you once again for your word. In Jesus' name that we pray. Church, would you shout amen? Come on, let's clap together one more time.